Hello folks, my name is Megan Healy and I'll be your host for the next hour and 15 minutes. We're about to start, so buckle up, grab some popcorn, put up your feet, and enjoy. I'll see you at the end. So stick to the crater, the best thing in nature, for sinking your sorrows and raising your joy. Hello and welcome to James Joyce, Saint or Sinner. I'm your host, Megan Healy. The inaugural episode of our show is centered around chapter one of Joyce's Ulysses, entitled Telemachus. I've approached this class, this book, and this chapter with nervous anticipation and a little bit of fear. How am I, someone who has not taken an English course since freshman year, supposed to conquer one of the greatest and most puzzling literary works ever written? Well, my mom always says you take yourself wherever you go, so I'm just going to try to work with what I have. After reading chapter one, I realized some of what I have is very similar to what our initial protagonist, Stephen Daedalus, has. The shaky, inherited faith that causes us to question what we've been taught versus what we believe. Megan and Bridget Healy. My name consists of three saints and a whole lot of Irish heritage, not much unlike Stephen Daedalus. Similarly, I've been enlisted in Catholic school since kindergarten. I've been told what to believe for longer than I can remember, but now have recently been calling into question what is my own belief and what are things I was told I should believe. The first chapter has pushed me to do this over and over. In Troibo, at Altar Dei, I will go to the Altar of God. My first introduction to the book was religious. I couldn't escape. I was pushed into this lens whether I wanted it or not. I guess this is how Stephen feels as well. You can't help your own thoughts. He bent towards him and made rapid crosses in the air. Being known as the super Catholic kid when you don't know what you believe is painful enough without an instigator like Buck Mulligan bringing it up to you as soon as you wake up. I wonder, Stephen, and he have a complicated relationship, it's nearly impossible to fill a role you don't know how to fill. Stephen's mind brings us to his mother over and over again. The giver and taker of his faith lives rent-free inside his mind. He cannot shake the feelings of guilt. He speaks of the ugliness and torture of her condition. We hear how horrible it was in the end. How do you look at someone you love who is experiencing unimaginable suffering and get down on your knees and speak to the one who is supposed to be all good and all loving? Stephen couldn't do it. I don't know if I could have. This is the moment in the chapter where I realized how easy it is to say you believe in something. God, eternal life, peace, purpose, a plan. It's a lot harder to get onto your knees and live up to those abstract notions when the person who brought you into the world is being taken out of it. Was not kneeling for his mother a sign of disbelief or a moment where he stood up for himself? all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening.
I'll see you for chapter two. And boys, I'd half wonder if lightning and thunder was made from the plunder of whiskey, me boys. It's the light and it's the obstacle that tests it. It's the heat that drives the light. It's the fire it ignites. It's not the waking, it's the rising. Hello, and welcome back to James Joyce, Saint or Sinner. Once again, I'm your host, Megan Healy. Last episode, we learned of my disillusioned faith and how this is coloring my view of Joyce's world. This, what I like to call healthy skepticism, has followed me all the way to the second chapter of the book. My recounting of Nestor will be the focus of our time together today. The second chapter shows us another side of our beloved protagonist. We see Stephen in what might not be his truest self, teaching a room of young boys a history lesson. Stephen may not be the greatest teacher, but this chapter allows us to learn more about what is going on inside his head. He knows he does not belong at the school, he knows teaching is not his true calling, he has much loftier goals and seems to be here just to pay the bills. I notice in this chapter how often God and faith creeps into his thoughts onto the page. He's teaching one of the students and begins to recognize himself in him. He's looking at him and recognizes the love that this boy's mother must have had. This in turn turns into the love that some other holier being must have had that helped his mother create him and have this powerful love for him. The idea of heaven and the afterlife also creeps into his head when he should be thinking about other things. He even lets words of the mass slip into his thoughts. As it was in the beginning, is now. On the sideboard, the tray of stork coins, base treasure of a bog, and ever shall be. And snug in their spoon case of purple plush, faded, the twelve apostles, having preached to all the Gentiles, world without end. He truly cannot keep these thoughts out of his head. Catholicism is constantly infringing on other parts of his life. This made me think about my own life. Has my entire worldview been shaped by the faith that I've been taught? Can I remove it from the other life lessons I've been taught? Would I still be me if I had been raised in a different faith or went to public school? How much of what I'm saying right now is contingent on the fact that being Catholic has been a major identity marker for most of my life, if not all of it, counting the three months it took me to get baptized. I started this project by introducing myself as a disillusioned Catholic. This chapter made me question if it was too late to start asking questions. Do I just believe in what I've been taught because it's too late to unteach myself? What am I without my faith? Can I ever rid myself of God's image and likeness? Or is this the life I'm supposed to live? That's all the time I have for today. Thanks for listening to my existential crisis. I'll be sure to see you next time for chapter three. Talk soon.
Hello once again. Welcome back to James Joyce, Saint or Sinner, with me, your host, Megan Healy. My friends call me Mego, but I'm not sure we're close enough for that just yet. I'm back on air today to talk about the next installment of Joyce's Ulysses. This time around, we'll be looking at Chapter 3, Proteus. I'd have to name the theme of this chapter as Catholic Guilt. Catholic guilt is that feeling you get when you do things that normal people do, but you feel upset about them because you went to the kind of school where they measured your skirt and said no man would ever love you if you did not remain pure as snow from your birthday to your wedding night. Chapter 3 puts us right into the psyche of Stephen Dalis and shows us just how much stress his faith has caused him. From here, we go deeper into Stephen's mind, where he begins to think of his own being and creation. My conception is not a subject I think of often, but for Stephen, is a chance to explore his being in regards to his faith. Wound and sin darkness, I was too made, not begotten. Stephen's words are the epitome of Catholic guilt. The belief that babies are brought into the world as sinful beings only sets the stage for the feelings we will have about ourselves for the rest of our lives. We are made in the image and likeness of God, not begotten. We are impure. Stephen recognizes this. This is something he carries with him as he tries to navigate everything else that pulls him away from God. This feeling carries him through the rest of the chapter where we leave him after he does the kind of thing they'd make you go to confession for. The shame and guilt that he feels just prior to this shows us just how deeply his faith has affected him. This feeling is something I know all too well. 16 years of Catholic school has made me feel like Stephen over and over again. The feeling that you can't do anything without earning yourself eternal damnation is one I know all too well. So then you try to convince yourself that all of these rules and regulations can't really be the deciding factor in what your afterlife will look like. But then there's always that little voice in the back of your head whispering that they could be. They could be the reason for paradise or hell if you believe in that kind of thing. These thoughts can really be haunting when you try to convince yourself they're true or not true. But, of course, having faith is believing in things that you can't know for sure. That's all the time I have for today. Thanks for sticking around for this edition of James Joyce, Saint or Sinner. We'll see you next time for Chapter 4, featuring some new music, some new analysis, probably some more guilt. See you soon. Okay, I promise the rest is worth listening to. Those first three were my first submissions, maybe not my best work, but stay along for the ride. It is so worth it. Why, hello there. I am so happy that you are back for the latest installment of James Joyce, Saint or Sinner. As always, I'm your faithful host, Megan Healy. 
Our next block of episodes feature the music of Irish singer Dermot Kennedy. While we listen to the words and sounds of this beautiful man, we'll be first talking about Ulysses chapter 4. This is where we first get to meet the man, the myth, the legend, Leopold Bloom. Joyce's character seems just like any other guy with a normal life, wife, cats, feelings, and thoughts. What sticks out to me most about Mr. Bloom and his somewhat normalcy is the role that sexuality plays in it. And this seemingly normal being, thoughts of sex and women creep into his head at almost every turn, while at home, at the deli counter, and just walking down the street. What seems so normal stands out on the page so outrageously to me. You'll remember last time when we talked about that whole Catholic guilt thing? Yeah, well, that comes out in full force when our guy Poldy stares at that woman in the deli. This had me thinking a lot about Joyce. Was he trying to make people uncomfortable? Or was he really just trying to depict the life as he knew it and how he thought other people knew it? He must have known that some people would be offended by his words, but I guess he's got a point. If this book is trying to depict normal life and that makes this book too dirty to read, then I guess life truly must be too dirty to live. This left me questioning a lot about what religion, specifically my Catholicism, teaches us about what is right and wrong and dirty and clean. After 16 years of Catholic education, I've never really quite worked out that if God made us in his image and likeness, why we should be so ashamed of our bodies and what they can do. The whole Garden of Eden thing just doesn't really cut it for me. I guess it doesn't help that as I was being taught this I am so loved and made by this incredible creator that I shouldn't wear nail polish or dye my hair because it messes with this natural image. That started in about fourth grade. Then in 10th grade, I would have to kneel on the floor to make sure my skirt touched it and my socks would have to be pulled up no lower than two inches below my knee to make sure that none of my legs would be showing to not distract the boys. I remember the great graduation dress debacle of what does sleeveless mean and are somewhat bare shoulders allowed or is everything despicable. This book and my religion and the education I've been taught has really made me question what real life is versus what the church tells us it should be, what is normal, and what we suppress because we're told to. I wonder if Joyce was just trying to be real, or if he was trying to stir the pot. I guess I have 600 more pages to figure it out. I'll see you real soon. Hello and welcome back to James Joyce, Saint or Sinner. I'm your beloved host, Megan Healy. Today's story is all about chapter five, Lotus Eaters, and those little things we say we believe in, but secretly think everyone knows isn't true. The name Lotus Eaters reminds me of that scene in the second Percy Jackson movie where Percy, Annabelle, and Grover get stuck inside the casino for days because they keep eating the lotus cookies. These cookies make them forget about time and that they need to leave and that they're on a mission. 
As a kid, I thought this was silly and fun to think of a cookie with magical powers. Now, as a slightly older kid, it's fun to see how creative the author was to put them in a casino where it makes sense for the owners to want to make people lose track of time. At these two stages and all the ones in between, I never really believed that the cookies were actually magical. Cut to page 66 of Ulysses, where Leopold Bloom is talking about the Catholic Church's version of Lotus Cookies. Corpus. Body. Corpse. Good idea the Latin. Stupefies them first. The Harry Potter fanatic part of me loves the use of the word stupefy. The doubtful Roman Catholic part of me loves the idea that the church uses Latin to confuse people long enough to keep them from asking questions. My six years of Latin education helps me to bypass the stupefication part of the term, Corpus Christi, and get straight to asking the tough questions. See, growing up, I always thought the idea of the host being the body of Christ was one of those things we all said but secretly knew wasn't true, like your dog going to live on the farm or the moon landing. Okay, I'm kidding about the last one, but you get the point. I always thought we all knew it was supposed to be the body of Christ, but no one truly believed that it was. Cut to the fall of freshman year to a conversation with my church-going friend, Amanda. She has celiac disease and takes it very seriously. Like, won't share water bottles and gets a colonoscopy every three months seriously. I was at mass with her once and noticed she received the regular host instead of the gluten-free one. When I asked her if it was just such a small amount of gluten that it wouldn't bother her, she said, looked me straight in the eye and said, Well, it has gluten, but then it becomes the body of Christ, so the gluten goes away. I was a bit dumbfounded. I questioned if she wasn't all that serious about the gluten thing as I had believed she was, or if I was truly the only person who didn't take this whole Corpus Crispy thing seriously. It appears James Joyce doesn't take it all too seriously either, but I'm not sure if that should make me feel better or worse. Anyways, that's all the time we have for today. I'll see you real soon. Hello, and welcome to our sixth installment of James Joyce, Saint or Sinner. As always, I'm your go-to gal, Megan Healy. Today, we're moving along the funeral procession through chapter six, Hades. This chapter has me thinking a lot about life and death and how we think about both. One thing I really like about Joyce is how realistic he is when talking about death. Talking about Stephen's mother or baby Rudy, he doesn't shy away from the grossness or the sadness associated with death. The death of Patty Dingham is a heartbreaking story we know all too well. Young father, here one minute, gone the next, without rhyme or reason. Joyce doesn't shy away from the mystery of who gets to stay and who has to go and what happens after they do it. One thing he does have down is what we do when people die and how we do it. We process, we dig, we drop, we bury, we cry, then we leave. We have it down to a science. This chapter has me questioning why. I could be wrong, but 
I don't remember any Bible verse saying what our coffin should be made of. Jesus was buried in a rock for Christ's sake. I understand how ancient Egyptians believed they would need their bodies in the afterlife, but I'm counting on who's ever up there to hook me up with a whole new being when I get wherever I'm going. Not having to wake up and immediately search for my glasses would be a huge upgrade. Why, if we believe in something better coming, do we show so much to the bodies left behind? Is it truly for the one we've lost, or is it so the rest of us can believe that when we go, people will still process and dig and drop and bury and cry before they leave us to face whatever is out there? Or do we question what's out there? Like I said in the last episode, is it one of those things that we all want to believe and we all want other people to think we believe? Or are we just a little nervous to fully let this body go? Do we want it to be there waiting for us in case we need it? Guess that's just one of those little things that we'll keep questioning as long as we'll live. And just like that, I'm pretty much out of time. It's been fun getting morbid with you. Send my love to your family and stay tuned for episode 7. Can't wait to talk to you soon. Until then, think about what you would want your tombstone to say. Or are you not into the whole burying thing? Sometimes I'd like to think I'd donate my body to science, but then again, what if this whole heaven thing I'm counting on isn't there? What are we supposed to do? Hello and welcome back to James Joyce, Saint or Sinner. We're back for our seventh installment, focusing on chapter seven, Aeolus. As always, I'm your favorite host, Megan Healy. So far, the disillusioned Catholic part of me has been stirred by something in every chapter. There's always been a line or passage that made me think of this identity. I won't lie, chapter 7 was a little tougher to get through and to find a piece of this identity within the lines of this chapter, at least for the purpose of this podcast. I don't know how God feels about advertising, but I am sure glad I am not a marketing major. Following Leopold Bloom around work wasn't stirring too much, if anything, within me. Sure, we were learning more about him and how he interacts with people around him, but nothing was really making me ask any big questions, any questions at all, really. Besides the, why am I so confused question. Then, boom. Page 115, lines 763 to 765. I have often thought since on looking back over that strange time that it was that small act, trivial in itself, that striking of that match that determined the whole aftercourse of both of our lives. This line made me start to think about the events in my life that seemed trivial, but have deeply impacted my life since then. Sitting in a random seat at a school mass led me to me dating my high school boyfriend, which led to my first real taste of love coupled with emotional and psychological manipulation and the breaking point in my mental health. Going on a walk with my freshman year roommate caused me to run into one of her friends from orientation, which has led to countless laughs, meals, memories, and one of the best friendships that I've ever known. Mentioning I was from Pennsylvania at an RA staff dinner caused the cute boy across the table to strike up a Sheets versus Wawa debate with me, 
which one day will probably be the story I tell to my future kids when they ask how I met their dad. These silly, trivial events have shaped the way my life has unfolded. It's left me thinking about the trivial decisions of my parents and grandparents and of their parents and grandparents that have caused me to be exactly where I am today. Doesn't seem so trivial anymore, does it? So then, if these millions of trivial decisions add up to the person we become, are they decisions or are they just us acting out God's supposed plan for us? The idea of us having free will but also being a part of this grander plan have never really added up to me despite the many, many explanations I've been given after my many, many questions over the course of my many, many years of Catholic school. Are any events really coincidences? Are we really making free decisions? How much weight does the notion of fate carry? I don't have an answer to this and I suspect I never will. I guess for now, I can keep enjoying the coincidences and pretend I never read those three little lines. That's all I got for now. TTYL. Hello, and welcome back to Jane's Joy's Saint or Sinner. In case you've forgotten, I'm your host, Megan Healy. Today, I'm supposed to be talking about Chapter 8, Lestragonians, while rounding out our episodes containing the music of Dermot Kennedy. On the first day of class, I remember hearing the words, If you have any doubt that you'll be able to read this book, stop now. Back then, I had no doubts. Sure, this work had a reputation, but I'm me. How can I not do this and do it damn well? So far, I've always found something to talk about and have felt like I've gotten something out of each chapter. Chapter 8 definitely brought out some doubts in me. I always read the assigned chapter first at work on the Monday before class. Then I read it again on Wednesday at work following class, trying to catch up on all the things I missed on the Monday read. Every Monday, the same professor comes in to swim. For reference, I work at the flex pool. And makes a comment about my progress on the book. Today, he looked at me in the middle of my struggle of reading Lestragonians and said, Wow, you, you still have got a long way to go. I'll check in with you next week. This being Len, I can make a lot of analogies about this man leaving me on my struggle on my own personal calvary. But I'll try to be less cynical and focus on how kind it was of him to check in with me week after week. Truly, he can't read the book for me, and there isn't much that he could offer, but still, he takes the time each and every week to check in and make me laugh about my struggle. This isn't the only instance of this happening, either. Everywhere I carry this red and gray book around, someone is bound to make a comment about it. It's a cool idea that a near 100-year-old book could be a connection point for strangers. Sounds like another pretty old book I know. Like the professor said, I've still got a long way to go, and chapter 8 was definitely the most challenging chapter for me so far. It left feeling much less confident and honestly much less interested. I was getting exceedingly anxious about how I'd finish this novel. I felt much like our pal Leopold did at the end of the chapter. These uncontrollable thoughts of self-doubt were racing around my head. But just like Leopold Bloom, 
I'll move on to the next chapter and I'll hope for the best. I hope next Monday when I'm reading chapter 9, I'll walk into the pool and I'll be able to say, I'm doing better this week. I almost understand it. And yes, he'll say, yes, but you still have a long way to go. But I'll at least feel a little bit better about myself than I did this week. That's all for now, folks. Good luck and good luck keeping the faith. Hello and welcome back to James Joyce, Saint or Sinner. I'm your host, Megan Healy. In this next chunk of our series, we'll be listening to the music of Niall Horan. Yes, from One Direction, but bear with me. Today's focus is Chapter 9, Scylla and Charybdis. We might be between a rock and a hard place, but we'll try our best to push forward. Besides trying to work out my troubled faith life, I spend the rest of my time as a political science student here at Boston College, where I know exactly what I believe and what I don't. This week, in one of my political science courses entitled Conflict and Polarization, we discussed the book entitled American Grace. The work focuses on our nation's entanglement with religion and how that affects our politics. We talked about the 20th century and how conservatism got so wrapped up in religion. Then we started asking a lot of questions, like why these issues arose, why did this reverent party pick these specific issues, like abortion and gay rights? Why was this their central focus? There's a whole lot in the Bible about caring for the earth and being stewards of creation. Where the hell are they on climate change? So in this discussion, we came to the conclusion that they picked these issues specifically because of political opportunity. It was a way to keep control in the hands of the people who already had it. It's also really, really politically easy to make people vote by scaring the hell out of them. If you can convince people that their vote is what separates them from eternal peace or eternal damnation, you could easily brainwash half the country. This discussion so clearly mimics the point Stephen is trying to get across. Who really set up all of these rules? If you have sex before marriage but are a saint the rest of your life, am I really, really supposed to believe you're going to hell? It all just seems like a way for the same old, old white guys to stay in charge while everyone else suffers and tries to follow their rules to no success. Just this week, Pope Francis said the church can't bless same-sex marriages. The elements of control continues. This fits right in with what Stephen was saying about property lines and trying to maintain control. He didn't really have a whole lot of things to back it up besides his infallibility and that he can basically say whatever the hell he wants and get away with it. There's this weird element in control that is present in everything the church does. My entire educational experience was about control. The threat of eternal damnation is one you don't really have to back up, but carries the most weight. It's really easy to make people do what you want when you can convince them of this. During detention at my high school, you would have to fill out a worksheet saying how what you did, even if it was showing up late for class or forgetting your books, harmed yourself and harmed your relationship with God and how you would work to fix this relationship. Call me crazy, but I really don't think God cares if I was late for class. How do you know, I guess? Well, 
That's all the time I have for now. I'll catch you really soon. Try staying closer to the saint side of things this week. Congratulations, you're halfway through. Only a few more chapters of me rambling to go. You can do it. Hello and welcome back to James Joyce, Saint or Sinner. As you very well know by now, I'm your host, Megan Healy. Today's focus is chapter 10, Wandering Rocks. A common theme for these past two episodes has been, my politics professor said something that related to this book too much not to mention it. So to set the scene, I'm sitting, working at the pool, trying to read the chapter like always, and for the first three pages, I really had a good thing going. I was focused, I was ready, I even noticed how Conway had mentioned the need for a tram line just as Mr. Bloom did earlier in the chapter, but everything changed on the fourth page. See, I got about halfway down the page when I noticed Joyce used a word that today would definitely be too dirty to write. But really, what got me thinking was the next paragraph. The next chunk of prose talked about lost souls. These were people, Father Comedy explained, there were all non-white groups that had not been brought to the faith. So even though he said these people were created by God in his own image and likeness because they had not been shown the faith, they had all been wasted or lost. Q Imperialism of the Catholic Church. This line brought me back to a young middle school me. I don't know what had prompted the deep faith question, but I specifically remember asking how we, meaning Catholics, knew we were right. My teacher shot back a confused look, so I explained how we had been learning all about other religions and how they believed in their own God and not ours. My nervous self definitely started to question what would happen if we got to the end and they had been right all along. This worried me at the time, and I had the same train of thought that Joyce mentioned. If my God wasn't going to take them, was their God going to take me? I pried and pried for an answer, which was met with explanations of the word faith, stories and miracles, and the look of... I can't really tell you for sure that I'm right, but I'm really counting on being right. No wonder childhood me was so stressed out. My eternal life was on the line all the time. Maybe this is why I felt the need to keep going to mass long after I started questioning the goodness of the Catholic Church, checking boxes, or keeping the faith. So, a few days ago, One of my political science professors said something that, again, is too related not to mention. We were talking about religion and political polarization, basically how people's belief in God slash gods affects them politically. An interesting note I took away from the class is that on surveys, most people, regardless of religion or party, believe that their neighbors can go to heaven. I question if this is something that has evolved since Joyce's time or if most people just give an idealized answer on these surveys. My Catholic education taught me that we were the one true heirs and clearly Joyce's did as well. So where did the change come from? I'm wondering too if this is something Joyce really believed or if it was just something he thought a priest would say. I'm not sure if Father Comney's version of 
or my politics professor's version is right, but I'm hoping I'm on the right side of whatever comes. I wish I could say that's all the mind I paid to these antics, but I couldn't help but to get trapped in Father Comney's words a second time. I got caught up when he was talking about the Countess of Belvedere and her secrets confess, aka the things she told this priest during the sacrament of confession. Okay, so like the whole Eucharist thing, I never really believed that the priest that you were sitting across from magically turned into Jesus, but I also didn't think that they would be thinking about what you said while they were teaching you in a class a few hours later. Confession day was a huge fight at my high school. They would make us go for more often than we thought we needed to, and students hated going. People would hide in the hallways, empty classrooms, or the bathroom to avoid it. Because I was terrified of getting into trouble from my teachers, not from God, I would always suck it up and go. Yes, I knew they weren't actually becoming Jesus, but I also thought that these priests had a way of dissociating from what I was saying, so I usually and pretty often was honest during these conversations. This was until junior year when I sat down across from my high school chaplain, an elementary school classmate of my father's and a great family friend. As I started to list my wrongdoings, I took a pause to think of what to say next. That's when Father Cyril Edwards looked at me and said, well, at least you haven't missed church. Everyone else has said that, but with parents like yours, I know you're not missing. Well, that was the end of my idealized belief that maybe they didn't know or care what we were saying. After this incident, I got very good at listening my non-awkward sins and then finishing up with a, for these and all my other sins, I'm truly sorry for. That way, I could check my boxes with the man upstairs, but didn't have to admit my encounters in the bushes with the man who spoke to my mother weekly. Well, that's the extent of my crazy Catholic school memories for today. I'll come up with more for next time. Talk to you soon. Hello, and welcome back to James Joyce, Saint or Sinner. As always, I'm your beloved host, Megan Healy. The subject of today's ramblings is chapter 11 of Joyce's work, entitled Sirens. Now, I won't lie, this chapter was a real challenge for me. I really loved 9 and 10 and found them so easy to write and think about and reread. But 11, just not my cup of tea. Nonetheless, because my grades, and I guess then my life, question mark, depends on cranking out three minutes of material, we'll find something to focus on. Because I've been talking about it for the past two chapters, I really can't shake this idea of religion and control. I always thought that people constructed religion as a way to understand the natural world around them. It's a lot easier to rationalize your existence when you can attribute it to a higher power. This makes it so much easier to understand why ancient peoples had myths and multiple gods. You need to explain every little thing. You couldn't understand it through science or anything else. Easy. Makes sense. But thinking of a global conspiracy to invent a controlling mechanism is way, way more interesting. I'm starting to think more and more that Joyce understands religion as more of the latter. Or at least that's what he wants us to think. Putting him a little closer to the end of the sinner spectrum. 
This chapter clued me into this even more because of this one continuous phrase. The sweets of sin. The sweets of sin. To someone who has been taught that sin is the roadblock between you and eternal happiness with your creator, sin doesn't sound so sweet. Why then does Joyce use this phrase over and over? Is he really just trying to give a sultry title to a scandalous book? Or does he really think sin is fun? Does he think that these things has, have been labeled as sin to keep people in a controlled state? The idea of sin is so interesting because once you outlaw these things as dirty and wrong, it just makes people want to do them that much more, right? So if you had just not talked about them, would people want to do them? It's like when parents don't let their kids drink soda, so then they throw up at the birthday party because they're knocking back Cokes. Meanwhile, the kids who drink it at home know how to pace themselves. Same story with underage drinking and driving and so many other things. Who came up with these rules and who is really the one enforcing them? Are we doing it to ourselves? Is someone doing it to us to maintain control? Or is this really the natural order of things? This book has really made me question what is actually worth following and believing and what might just be a literary or controlling tool. Who actually knows the truth? Who is really behind all of it? If you figure it out before next week, please let me know. Until then, I'll just be here contemplating, I guess. Alright, that's all I got for now. I'll talk to you soon. I've been told before that this chapter was brilliant. Or, if you will, the greatest of all time. Enjoy the little goat break, and good luck. Have fun. Hey there. Welcome back to James Joyce, Saint or Sinner, with your beloved host, Megan Healy. The focus of our episode today is Chapter 12, Cyclops. I had some pretty high hopes going into this chapter because the Cyclops adventure is one of my favorite parts of the Odyssey. So I was hoping this chapter would be just as exciting. While there were many parallels, including the use of alcohol as a weapon, this version of Cyclops made me think about much different things than the action-packed chapter in the Odyssey. I would be remiss if I didn't discuss the climax of the chapter and arguably of the book. This contentious conversation regarding identity and nationality and belonging it made me think about what really matters and who the hell we are. This week, I was interviewed after winning an Ever to Excel award through the Office of Student Involvement. Not a big deal at all, I'm just kind of at the top of my game. Okay, anyways, I won the Campus Ministry Award for International Service. Yes, I understand the irony, and no, I did not let them listen to this podcast. Two of the questions they asked me were, what did serving internationally allow me to learn about my faith? And a follow-up, How since then have I been living this out? Yeah, answer that in four sentences or less on camera. Sitting in that classroom feels like somewhat of a fever dream, but I'll give you my best recollection of what I said. The general idea was that serving internationally showed me the connection between all humanity, regardless of really anything. I explained that most of my service was playing with or caring for children in shelters in Mexico, 
We spoke little to no English and really had no idea who the hell I was or what I was doing there. But they didn't really care. All they wanted was someone to show them a little love and to play catch or with dolls or braid their hair. I moved on to question two by answering how this made me recognize the inherent dignity of every person created by God and the responsibility we have to work for justice and equality for everyone because everyone is equal in God's eyes. I know, right? Exactly what they wanted to hear. Anyways, while I was definitely trying to sound polished and prestigious and religious, the sentiment was true. Serving these children made me question these arbitrary distinctions we put on ourselves, like nationality and religious distinctions, and if any of it really matters in the long run. This goes back to the question of religion as well. Is it something that really matters and is worth fighting over, like Joyce makes it seem in this chapter, or is it just something that we call ourselves? In some ways, if it's the latter, it's harmless. If it pushes us to be better people and to work for good, then why should we not respect this label we put on ourselves? The trouble comes when we're getting into bar fights or multinational conflicts over these distinctions. Is it worth it? Should we really be fighting with people who are inherently the same as us over distinctions we made ourselves? Well, I guess for now, if you want to go to heaven, you kind of have to. I guess I'll never know what to actually believe, but at least for now, I'm winning awards for what they think I do. I'll talk to you soon. Give the family my best. Hello, and welcome back to James Joyce, Saint or Sinner. As always, I'm your host, the one and only Megan Healy. In this last podcast featuring the music of Niall Horn, we're focusing on chapter 13, Nausicaa. Joyce keeps me on my toes, wondering if these are really his thoughts about women, or if he's just trying to portray what a guy like Leopold Bloom might think. Reading chapter 13, I'm really, really, really hoping it's the latter. The portrayal of Gertie in this chapter is exactly what the guide suggests. Exactly what a man who writes ads for women would hope women would be like. She's interested in all the things she's supposed to be. She is just flirty enough without being too much. She's a caretaker. She's beautiful. She's well-dressed. She caters to Bloom's glances. She just seems like such a redacted version of a woman. Her thoughts aren't really developed or always clear. It just definitely seems like a man's idea of what a woman should be and what a woman thinks about and what a woman cares about. She fits into this little role she was given and occupies all of the teeny tiny space she is supposed to. While I can go on and on on an angry rant about this kind of thinking, I'll settle for a quick one coupled with an egregious story from my terrifying high school experience. Discussing chapters 9 and 10, we talked about property laws and politics and the commandments and church codes, and that they just might be fancy ways to maintain male order and clear property lines. What remains a convincing argument also helps us understand why this is the idealized version of a woman in Bloom's mind in this chapter. She, too, remains at a place that serves these already existing structures as well. I was thinking about if things have gotten any better. Are we still being pushed into these roles and ideas? Given that we're at least pointing these issues out, I guess in some ways there must be some change coming. 
But then I think back to my high school and all the crazy ways I was pushed right back into this property protecting system. One vivid memory I have happened during my sophomore year of Holy Cross High School. A little 15-year-old, never-been-kissed me walked down the hallway into the auditorium for an unnamed school assembly. As we took our seats, this woman wearing a fairy costume, screaming in a high-pitched shrill, ran in and started introducing herself. The more she started talking, the quicker I realized that this was my conservative Catholic high school's attempt at the talk. You know, the whole wait till marriage jargon. Well, in order to best convey this message, this woman pulled out a big wrapped gift box out of her Mary Poppins style bag and started running up and down the aisles of students. Finally, she stopped her insane running and asked if there were any male students who would like to come up to open the box. Some brave soul raised their hand and moved to the front of the auditorium where he started unwrapping the box. He found a chocolate bar inside and was allowed to take it back to his seat, leaving the box unwrapped and clearly empty. She haphazardly tried to put the box together and then again asked for a male volunteer to come and open the box for a second time. Because it was crumpled and the candy was already claimed, no one offered to come reopen this weird box. After the lack of participation, the woman claimed that this box was similar to the ladies in the room. Once we gave our virtue away, we could just never get it back, and no boy would want us ever again. We were then dismissed from the auditorium, and on the way out, we were all handed a pink wristband with the words, I'm worth waiting for, carved into it. Meanwhile, the boys all got away, scot-free, one of them with a candy bar. Talk about reduction. My entire being was reduced to a gift box with a chocolate bar that a crazy woman in a fairy costume carried around. I hate to say it, but I don't think this sort of reduction is very far off from the way Gertie is portrayed in the chapter. Maybe it would be an advertiser's dream for a woman to want to keep her box unopened. Alright, that's all the ranting I have in in me for now. I'll talk to you soon. Hello and welcome back to James Joyce Saint or Sinner. As always, I'm your host, Megan Healy. In this segment of our series, we'll once again be featuring the music of an Irish artist. This time, it's the band, The Scripts. Enjoy the beauty of their music for the next few episodes with me. Today's focus is on chapter 14, Oxen of the Sun. Deemed one of the more difficult chapters, I'd have to agree. This was definitely one that was challenging to read and write and speak about, but I'll try my best if you try your best to listen. While following Bloom around this hospital, many things come to mind. I could speak about the line, expecting each moment to be her next, regarding a woman's experience in labor. Of course, a play on the term, expecting each moment to be her last. We could talk about the maternal mortality rate for whatever reason, how often women have to get so close to death to bring life into the world, and how this probably would have been fixed by now if this was the problem that affected men, but I'll spare you. Just sit with that for a little bit, you know? What we will be talking about is the passage that comes next, where the drunken men sitting around the table are debating whether it's better to save the mother or the baby in a difficult childbirth. Yeah, let's leave the decision up to them. I'm sure the outcome will be great. A few drunken men sitting around in a hospital. Okay, I'll save my angry feminism for another day. But I do think this is such an important question, and one where the Catholic Church and my Catholic education kind of loses me. 
the church says to save the baby. Even if you are going to lose the mother, you save the baby. I'm surprised the U.S. law hasn't adopted this view yet, but still, this principle really makes me think. Why does the church value this new life over this already existing one? I'm really, really, really tempted to go with the previous argument in the book that is all about maintaining control, specifically over women and property lines, but I'm going to work to stretch it out a little further here. I think it also has something to do with the idea of purity, if you will. A newborn baby is pure, while a mother, someone who has clearly had sex, is clearly not. What does she have to offer now that she has been used and abused by the process of labor? Meanwhile, a baby is a fresh start. Part of me gets it. This is a call no doctor or father or mother would ever want to make. But I just find it so ridiculous that it's a hard and fast rule. How could this be the answer in every single million what if? Is there no consideration of quality of life or what the family wants? Automatic eternal damnation if a mother wants to stay alive. It's instances like this where the church feels out of touch and too drastic. It's the same story of how they deem that above all else you must vote for a candidate that is pro-life. The candidate may hate women and minorities, but so long as they are pro-life, that is your Catholic duty. I'm serious my church handed out pamphlets that said this. I really think this is where they lose people. And I'd venture as far to say this is one of the places where they may have lost Joyce. I've been reading this novel with the idea that Stephen reflects Joyce in the back of my head, and if so, Stephen's response to this question proves Joyce isn't exactly on the church's side in this debate. Similarly, Bloom's follow-up joke about the church making money off of both situations doesn't exactly scream devout Catholic to me. I guess you could stretch that line of thinking even further to say they'd vote to keep the baby because the longer lifespan means more money to be made. I guess you'll have to make your own decision on the matter. That's all I got for now. Let's talk soon. Bye! Hello and welcome back to James Joyce, Saint or Sinner. As always, I'm your host, Megan Healy. Today we're tackling a monster of a chapter, chapter 15, Cersei. There's a whole lot going on in these 157 pages, so bear with me as I try to make sense of it. Before we get into our crazy Catholic school story of the day, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out some of my favorite moments and some big questions from this chapter. Joyce really had me laughing when he described someone as having herbivorous buck teeth. Who would even think to describe someone having parsley in their teeth in such a ridiculous way? The one and only James Joyce, apparently. Similarly, he got a giggle out of me when he had the person asking about bladder trouble own the name Pisser Burke. Really, who thinks of that? Subtle, but pretty funny. I felt like an educated reader a few pages later when I noticed the callback of the phrase, the sweets of sin. Not really a big analysis here, rather just a pat on my own back, really. The big questions came when Bloom was said to have winked to the bystanders. Were we the bystanders? Were we included? And again, when he mentioned that he wanted to become pregnant and be a mother. Odd to say at the least. I also get very confused every time someone mentions race, because was it really an issue in this area in this time? We haven't had much discussion of this, but it comes up in weird places, and I'm just unsure why and what exactly Joyce means by this. Alright, so my rambling is done. I'll focus on what you're actually paying for. Well, I guess 
what I'm paying about $75,000 a year for? Anyway, that's really the same. Okay, anyways, this time I'll stop. I promise I'll stop my complaining now. The part I actually want to focus on is Leopold II's accusation of Leopold III. He questions him saying, Are you not my dear son Leopold, who left the house of his father and left the god of his fathers Abraham and Jacob? Jeez, what an accusation. Parents always have a way of reminding us that they, we are not who they raised us to be. Throw in the in- eternal damnation threat and you have the perfect reason to ground someone. This passage made me think a lot about where religion comes from and if we believe what we do because of experience or because it's what we grew up with. As you well know by now, I'm heavily involved with the Kairos program on campus. Part of my job is listening to the talks that the leaders give on the retreats. One of the talk topics is entitled Faith. More often than not, it's someone like me who gets up there and says that they were raised Catholic, had trouble with their faith, but now sees God in a different way than the textbook version they were taught about as a kid. Sounds like a lot of bullshit, I know. I've avoided giving this talk for this reason. But a few weeks ago, I was listening to a faith talk, expecting this same cookie-cutter version I always get. Instead, the boy sitting across from me started by saying, I was bred, born, and raised Catholic but now I'm an atheist. Wowza. (laughs) Not what I expected. I could talk about atheism, but the part that really gets me is the idea of being bred to be Catholic. Saying it this way has a more intense sentiment than just being raised Catholic. This means that two people got together to have a child with the intent of having another Catholic in the world. There wasn't an option. It's in the blood. Like Leopold, I question if I were to leave like this leader did, would I just be leaving behind some beliefs? Or would I be leaving behind a part of my heritage? That, something that makes me, me. My brother is a freshman at BC and he stopped going to mass, but won't admit that to my mom because he knows it would break her heart. Is it the parental expectation that keeps us going or is it true belief? How long does this last? Am I just baptized because my grandmother would have had a heart attack if I wasn't? Is it part of me I can get rid of, or is it my inheritance that will someday become my grandchildren's inheritance? While you play out the nature versus nurture debate in your own head, I'm going to stop here and start working on our next episode. Have a great week, folks. Hello, and welcome back to James Joyce, Saint or Sinner. As always, I'm your host, Megan Healy. The focus of our conversation today, well, really me talking to you and less of a conversation, but anyways, is chapter 16 of Ulysses, Emmaus. As you well know by now, I usually fill these three minutes with a traumatic story from my Catholic school journey. I could spend today talking about the biblical story of the road to Emmaus and how it matches up with the story of Emmaus and the Odyssey and similar stories in our beloved Ulysses. I really could. We can get really deep into theology here, but I'll let you off easy today. Sounds like a teacher who doesn't want to work. I know I've definitely had many of those in my Catholic school experience, so it kind of fits. Work with me here. So the part I am going to talk about today is on page 506, when Leopold asked Stephen why he left his father's house. We can get into the biblical meeting of that once again, but lucky for you, I'm once again letting you off the hook. What really sat with me from this back and forth is the fourth. Stephen responds to this inquiry by saying, to seek misfortune. 
I left my father's house to seek misfortune. Yes, he's a bit dramatic and melancholy, we know this. But his dramatics reminded me of my own and it made me stop and think. I had really questioned earlier why Stephen had left his siblings to suffer. I thought to myself, how could you leave people you love with so little and no opportunity to grow or have a better life? It just didn't sit right with me. I couldn't imagine doing this to my own siblings. But his answer to this question kind of gave me a little more insight. It wasn't like he left his family for a life of glamour and riches. He jumped off of one sinking ship onto a makeshift life raft. He was seeking misfortune or safety. I'm going to get a bit metaphysical here, but truly it made me question why we do anything. Life could be so easy theoretically if we stayed stagnant. If Stephen had stayed home, life may have been difficult, but it would have been a known misfortune. If we never took any risk, we would have comfortable misfortune. But if we take a risk and go into the unknown, it might be seen as seeking misfortune, but is it a leap we have to take? Now, hang on with me here, because I kind of think faith is similar. If we decided to just focus on ourselves and our problems, we would be sticking with known misfortune. We would take our problems into our own hands and be unable to blame them on anyone else. But if we take the chance to leave our homes and take a leap of faith, pun intended, and put our trust in something else, we are absolutely seeking misfortune. We are absolutely asking to be let down. This is definitely the sinner side of me, but believing in something bigger than yourself is asking to be hurt and to feel this misfortune. If you put your faith into something else, when something goes wrong, you're bound to feel hurt. If you expect an all-good and all-loving being to keep things all-good and all-loving, you are surely meant to be let down. But then again, if Stephen never took the chance and left home, if we never took the chance and put our faith into something, would we ever grow? Would we ever get the chance to go to heaven? Well, you're lucky for sparing you from a theological lesson, but I guess I'm leaving you with big questions, so what's better or worse? Buckle up because we'll have some more big questions coming soon. I'll see you then. Megan. Hello and welcome back to James Joyce, Saint or Sinner. Once again, I'm your host, the one and only Megan Healy. We're getting closer and closer to the end of our journey together and the end of our time listening to the script, but lucky for you, we still got a little bit to go. The focus of our conversation today is the penultimate chapter of the book. Chapter 17, Ithaca. This Q&A was filled with many laughs, big words, and tender but awkward moments between our two main men, Stephen and Leopold. Some of my favorites include the answer to why Poldy was doubly irritated. Because he had forgotten and because he had remembered that he reminded himself twice not to forget. Joyce got a laugh out of me with this one. I hardcore related to Leopold when you forget to do that thing that you promised yourself you wouldn't forget to do? (sighs) Joyce made me stop and appreciate his literary talent when he made something as simple as washing your hands seem beautiful and poetic. As Leopold is washing his hands, Joyce notes he's doing so in fresh, cold, never-changing, ever-changing water. 
I felt like I've washed my hands seven million times in the past year and a half alone, but I've never stopped to notice the stream of water in front of me. Never changing. Ever changing. Damn. That's why they dedicate entire courses to this guy's book, I guess. I just, I never stop to notice that the water just continuously comes out of the tap and it looks the same, but it's always different. A fickle, constant, and irregular regularity. So yes, I loved a lot of parts of this chapter, but I know the point of this podcast is to talk about the one that made me think about my faith, so don't worry, I'll get there. Usually I spend my time talking into my microphone about how this chapter reminded me of how screwed up my Catholic faith is and how that was made by my screwed up education, but in this chapter, Joyce turned my cynical self into kind of a big softy. Hugh, page 573. The questioner ponders, with what meditations did Bloom accompany his demonstration to his companion of various constellations? So the response is a lot of words and thoughts, but when I break it down, it reminds me why I believe that there's a God out there. Yeah, I know that's a lot of pressure to put on a few little lines, but hang with me. I promise we'll get there. So as you well well know by now, I really struggle with what I believe and what I don't. My crazy school experience constantly pushes me away, but then there's this little piece of me that always draws me back, and Joyce perfectly encapsulates it here. When you're standing at the edge of the beach, and the incoming tide just covers your feet, and you can't see the end of the shoreline on either side of you or where the horizon ends in front of you, it's so hard not to believe that someone didn't design that. Someone or something had to plan for something to look so beautiful and vast and so much bigger than me and all my little problems. It's easy not to believe when you concentrate on yourself and the things that surround only you. When you take a second to think about how small you are in the grand scheme of things, which this passage made me do, you gotta give it up to the big guy in the sky. I don't know where chapter 18 will take me, but at least we're leaving this chunk of Ulysses on a high note. Thanks for your time, and I'll see you real soon. Megan, over and out. Hello and welcome back to the last installment of James Joyce, Saint or Sinner. As you well know by now, I'm your host, the one and only Megan Healy. We've come so far together talking and joking and listening to many different Irish artists. Today, the focus of our conversation is chapter 18, Penelope. It's only fitting that because this chapter is the only time we get to hear the voice of Molly, and really the only time we hear a strong female voice, we should spend some time listening to another strong female Irish voice in the music of Enya. I can't believe how far we've come together. It feels just like yesterday I was reading chapter one with an entirely different plan for this podcast and this class. After the first day, I really considered dropping it, but I decided I needed the challenge and here we are many hours and chapters and pages and re-recordings later. I have a lot of opinions and confusions about this final chapter. It was a relief to hear the voice of the woman we've been thinking about this entire time, but why was it so hard to read? You know that scene in Evan Almighty where he promises everyone it's going to rain and then it doesn't, so he looks up at the sky and screams, is it too much to ask for a little precipitation? Yeah, well this is how I felt, but it replaced the word precipitation with punctuation. Talk about a run-on sentence. 
Despite this, I like the chance to get to know Molly and hear her side of the story. Some first impressions of our leading lady, she's funny. The line, she's as much a nun as I'm not, hysterical. I do see why some could call her scandalous. The way she talks about sex and men definitely would have gotten her banned from my high school. I know I usually talk about God and religion and Catholic school, but I'm feeling a little sappy this afternoon. The part of the chapter that really stood out to me was the relationship between Molly and Leopold. The deep love and understanding coupled with the deep mistrust and hurt. Their relationship is messy and complicated, and finally we finally got to her the other side of the story. As someone who is soon to be entering into a long-distance relationship, I've been thinking a lot about what makes relationships with people worth it and why we end up with the people we do. Is it by chance, or is there really some grander plan out there? Is it all about location and circumstance, or is there some higher power up there moving all the pieces? I was watching a TV show the other day, and one of the characters was talking about her relationship troubles and her long-term boyfriend, and said that her boyfriend sometimes feels like a tattoo. When you first get it, it's new and exciting and a choice, and then after a while it fades, and it's just now a part of you, and the reasoning slips away, and you might start to question why it's there in the first place. She was obviously having some big doubts, but this reminded me a lot of Molly. In so many ways, Leopold is tattooed on her. Over and over again, we see how well she knows him and how much their relationship has meant to her. She knows that if he doesn't eat onions with dinner, he was going to see another woman. She knows how he will respond to all of her questions. They have a deep history to the point where she says she could write a book about him. He's given so many little pieces of himself to her over and over again. But then again, there's the cheating and the fact that she thinks he could never find someone else to put up with him that the way she does. It doesn't matter how much she knows him or loves him because it doesn't solve everything. I know I talk a lot about how my high school's sex talk traumatized me, but I can't help it, so here it is again. So junior year, I'm taking morals and ethics with Sister Eileen. One of the lessons we learned was about the dangers of premarital sex. On our exam, we had to list five reasons given in the textbook why this sin was so harmful to young people. Besides the whole hell, eternal damnation part, one of the reasons that I remember was the fact that they said having sex before marriage bonded you too deeply with someone and you couldn't grow into your own person. This terrified 16-year-old me, but besides that, I like to think this has a lot to say about Molly and Leopold's relationship. Besides the sex part, I think any kind of relationship causes you to form into someone to please someone else. Clearly, Molly and Poldy have bonded deeply and have impacted the way the other interacts with the world. My question is, is this a bad thing? Poldy's treatment taught Molly about what she wants and what she doesn't. She can now go out and scandalously go get what she wants. She was allowed, air quotes around aloud, to experiment before marriage, would she have known what she wanted before she got Leopold? Are those initial bonds crucial for forming healthy relationships as an adult? Maybe I'm just trying to justify staying in my high school relationship as long as I did, but I really think I have a point here, one that Molly convinced me of even more. That's all I got today, folks. I really can't thank you enough for coming on this long-winded journey with me. It's been quite the ride, all these many hours and chapters and pages and re-recordings later, but it's been worth it. I've learned more about myself and what I believe in the power that literature has to affect them. Thanks for coming on this journey with me. Cheers, Megan. 
you've made it. Congratulations. Thanks for sticking with me all this time. Hope you enjoy. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, and like.